I have to share with you that one time I was part of a court trial. Now, I wasn't being accused of anything. I was on the jury, all right? And so it was a tremendous experience for me and probably one I will not soon forget. The, uh, the, the way it was all handled was just amazing to me. I've seen things on television, but being there in real life has, is just so different. And so uh, part of all this was... Uh, uh, to go over evidence that's presented by the prosecution and then uh, to hear witnesses that would build a case. And so we had a lot to process uh, through this whole time. And so in the end, the testimonies helped us to decide the guilt or innocence of the accused. And that is no easy task. That is no easy task. Um, sometimes you think you wish that it was very clear, but then sometimes it is not, especially when there are very skilled lawyers who are involved. Now, in some similar way, the church is a witness for the truth of the gospel. The church is a witness for the truth of the gospel. Our testimony or witness about Christ can help people make up their own minds about accepting Christ and the offer of forgiveness of sin and eternal life that is made possible through Him. And so, when a church stops witnessing, it has stopped doing one of the most important tasks that God has given to the church to do while here on earth. And that is keeping people from diving headfirst into God's wrath. And this is sometimes a thought that just escapes even the most mature churches because they've heard it so often and in so many different ways. But we trust God again to help us to understand what it is to be a witness for God, to be a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. John chapter 3, verse 36 says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so there is this very important task, there is this task that, that God has given to you and to you and to you and to me. And that is to be a faithful, credible witness of God and the gospel uh, to this world. So the question then comes, how can we do that? How can we be a faithful and credible witness for the Lord? And this is all part of our series of messages on what does the Bible teach about the church? And so, uh, in a way, we, it helps us to go back and review very quickly uh, what we have covered so far. And what we have seen is that the Bible does have a lot to say about the church. Probably more than we first realized. Perhaps more than we want to know sometimes. But nevertheless, God has spoken and it's for us to he hear and to heed. So, what does the Bible teach about the mission and power of the church? And so this time, I put them up and I just added some key words. And if you've been with us the whole time, you hear the key word and it automatically should spur you to remember important points. For example, the mission of the church, make disciples. Okay, that is our mission. And then the power of the church to accomplish this mission is through the Holy Spirit and his ministries. But the Bible goes on beyond this, and it tells us also about the ministries of the church. And all of these are very important to us. They're very common to us, because if you've been going to church for a while, you say, yeah, I, I've experienced it. Yeah, I, I've been part of this. I've been part of that. 
But what is it that God hopes to accomplish through these ministries? What is the important thing that we ought to know about these ministries? For example, the worship of the church. We, and we learned in scripture that true worship happens in spirit and in truth. There is this great need to have heart preparation and not just physical preparation for coming to church. God is very interested in that. And so that when we come together to learn his truths, we are ready to receive it. And then the fellowship of the church. It's all based on the revelation of Jesus Christ. What makes fellowship between you and me is Jesus Christ. And then there was the proclamation of the church. The ministry of the preaching and teaching of God's word. I don't know what you expect. I don't know what your background is. But we're not here at church to come and just hear nice stories and hear uh, all kinds of, uh, of, 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 of good illustrations and things like that and have a good laugh and go home. But really, we are here to see what God's word has to say about us, about him, about life. And so this becomes a part of the ministry of proclamation of the church. Now, today, we're into the testimony of the church. And what is this? The ministry of spreading the gospel and what it involves. What does this involve, this sharing of the gospel? It sounds so serious. It sounds so foreboding. It sounds so challenging. And it is. But what is it that will help us and make us to be better and faithful, credible witnesses for the Lord? And there's three things, praying, going, and living. And so if we can keep these three things in mind, we will, have a good, we will have good preparation to become a credible and faithful witness of the gospel. Now, for this, we're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, we have to correct your bulletin there. There's a, mis there's a typing error there. And it is 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 1 to 7 and onwards. And so, first of all, the thing that will help us to be an effective witness for the Lord is praying for the lost, praying for those who have not heard the gospel and who have not received the gospel. Now, you say to yourself, well, that sounds awful basic, and it sounds, uh, you know, what happened to all the, the methods? What happened to all of the uh, this and that and the other? No. First, Paul says, uh, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the first thing is praying for the lost. Look at verse 1. It says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. And so what do you notice here first? Well, he says, first of all. Now, when Paul says these things, he says it for a reason. And first of all does not mean first on the list. Okay, It's not like... Probably after church, you've got some shopping you have to do, and you'd say, oh, I need to pick up this, I need to pick up that. I need to. It could be in any order, but I just want to make sure I remember them. All right, That's not what he has in mind. What he has in mind, rather, is that it's of first importance. So he says, when you think about this whole business of being a witness for the Lord, the first thing is prayer. The first thing is prayer. What kind of prayer? Well, he lists four different kinds there. He says, entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. And if we had the time, we could go through and define each one of them and distinguish them. But suffice it to say that it is a whole galaxy of prayers. And there are prayers that are suitable for whatever need and whatever situation. And so, 
Paul says, hey, you're going to be an effective witness for the Lord? The first thing is to pray. And pray for all kinds of things. Pray for all kinds of uh, situations and needs that may be out there. So the first thing is the priority of praying for the lost. And then the second thing it, that we see in verse 1 and on to verse 2 is the objects of praying for the lost, the objects of our prayers. Look at the last part of verse 1. It says, be made on behalf of all men. Now, God is not leaving out anybody. <laughs> He's just saying, look, the, short, the tall, the short, the, 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 the young, the old, and so on and so forth. We should pray for all men. We shouldn't have to separate anybody, leave anybody behind. He says we should pray for all men. So that's a general context. But then he gets more specific. And he says, for kings and all who are in authority. Now that's an interesting thought there. He says that we ought to pray for kings and all who are in authority. It would be helpful to understand the time in which Paul wrote this. When Paul was writing this, he was under the mighty Roman Empire. But the mighty Roman Empire was not so mighty. <laughs> it was on the cusp, it was on the threshold of decline. It was going down, it was going downhill. And the frightening thing about it is as the Roman Empire went down, what rose up was the hatred and persecution of Christians. And so suddenly, Christians who had been under the famous Pax Roma was suddenly... Their lives were in danger. Their life was about to change. And Paul points this out. He says, pray for the kings. Pray for the emperor. Pray for those in authority. Why? Well, he says this in verse 2. He says, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, what does he mean by that? He uses two words there. He says, tranquil. This means the internal circumstances in us, that we would have peace in our hearts. There would be relative calm and peace and confidence going on. But then he also used the word quiet. And the word quiet there has to do more with the external circumstances around us. So if you put these two together, what he's, Paul is trying to say is pray for those in leadership, pray for those who are in positions of authority and influence. Why? so that we may have a stable, peaceful environment within us and around us. Okay? And so this becomes important. Now, you say to yourself, but isn't it true that when there's times of persecution, there are times of, of, of hostilities and things that the faith seems to grow? Yes, that's true. But also, it is in a time of stability that the gospel is able to spread out and is able to sink deep roots as well. Dwayne Lipman was the president of Wheaton College and also uh, one of the professors at Dallas Seminary where I came from. And he had this to write in his book about this passage. He says, times of political and social upheaval are excellent times in which to die for Christ but hard times in which to live for him. You see? And so what he's trying to say is that there is something to be said about times of social stability. It was able to spread out. And this was true during Paul's early days in his ministry as he went on missionary journeys. Because of the Pax Roma, because of 
as brutal as the Roman Empire was, it brought a measure of stability and peace so that he could safely travel between the cities and spread the gospel. The churches could meet because there was a measure of religious freedom. They could assemble. They could come around the word of God. They could worship, you see. And that was possible. And so that's what Paul is having in mind. He's saying, pray for your leaders. Pray for the rulers of your countries. Why? So that we can have a stable uh, environment, both within us and around us, so that we can spread the gospel. So what that says to us is that we must reorganize, perhaps, our priorities. Don't just pray for yourself and your own personal needs. Pray for peace in your community, family, work, and school so you can have the opportunity to share Christ. Pray for those in positions of authority like government officials and employers and teachers and principals for their salvation and cooperation to allow you to share the truth. You see, we don't give much thought to that, do we? We just hear it and we say, okay, I'm going to go share the gospel. But it's very hard to do in a very antagonistic kind of environment. And Paul is saying, pray for those who have influence in those particular areas. But Paul doesn't stop there. Because Paul says, if we're going to pray for the lost, I want you to have the, understand some prerequisites for praying. And this is very helpful because it helps to, us to deal with the questions. Why is it that I've been praying so hard and so long for somebody like my family or a friend or something like that, and it doesn't seem to go anywhere? And so the Apostle Paul gives us the prerequisites of praying for the lost. What are those? Before we pray for the lost, we must pray for ourselves. And what is that that we should be paying attention to? Well, go down to verse 8, please. Go down to verse 8. And in the first part of that verse, verse 8, it says, Therefore, therefore what? Based on what he just said about praying for leaders and praying for the, praying for the lost, he says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. Now, I know some people would say to themselves, wait a minute, wait a minute, this holy hands business and all that, you know, I, I'm not into that, you know. Okay, all right. But what is it that Paul means by this? First of all, lifting up holy hands is one of the postures of, the, of uh, worshipers of God found in the Bible. Okay, so it's not something unbiblical. It's not something that they just picked out of the air. But what does he mean specifically about holy hands? Well, you have to take those two words apart, holy and hands. The word holy, what does it mean? It means unpolluted, unstained by evil. It means undefiled. And so what this has reference to is internal cleanliness, spiritual cleanliness. Hands. Hands were often associated with the activities of life. Okay? The activities of life. So, you put the two together. Holy hands. What do you get? You get holy living. You get righteous living. So what Paul is trying to say is, as we pray for the lost, we must prepare ourselves to live righteously, to live holy lives. And this will help make our prayers more effective. Is this supported anywhere else? Yes. In James chapter 5, verse 16. 
It says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So somehow, effectiveness of prayer and righteous living are attached. They're connected, okay? And so this is where we need to head. But again, Paul goes on and he gets more specific in that very same verse. And he says, uh, this is, uh, he tells us that we should do it without wrath and dissension in verse 8. What does this have to do? It has to do with attitude and character and behavior. And what does wrath mean? Wrath means without anger or outbursts of anger. Be on good terms with others. Do not be a troublemaker, but rather a peacemaker, so that your prayers can be heard and can be answered. You see, some of us are so wrapped up, and we are so angry at people or circumstances around us, we can't see straight, we can't pray straight. Okay, And then we sit back and we wonder, why is it that God's not hearing our prayers? Because we hold in this sinful anger. And then another one says, without dissension. This means literally without disputing. Open disagreements with others. Well, how can we get past this? Well, it would be helpful for us to learn to disagree without being disagreeable. I, I know people in my circle of friends, and, and we disagree all the time, you know. I like pepper crab. I like chili crab. You know, we talk about the important things like that, you know. We really, you know, we disagree about all this and that, you know. I like blue cars. I like white cars. I like this. I like that. You know, disputings over everything and anything, okay. And he says, no, put those disputes away and, and learn to get along with each other. Get along with one another, Philippians chapter 2 says, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So, in summary, then, what is Paul trying to say? He is saying that when you and I pray for the lost, that we ought to keep in mind our relationship with God. Are we right with God? Are we living righteously according to God's standard? Or, or, is there some kind of sin that's going on in our life and it is blocking the way for our sins to be answered by God? You know, God is not just a, a, a capricious God. He doesn't just say, oh, I love you so much, I'll give you this, I'll love you this. No, God has standards. And well, God is not bashful about saying, no, I'm not going to give you that. I'm not going to answer that. Okay? Until you get your act together, until you're living righteously. So are we right with God? Then it says, are we right with other people? Are we filled with all kinds of anger? Are we filled with all kinds of disputes with people? Are we arguing over this and arguing over that? So much turmoil. God says, I'm not sure I'm going to answer these prayer requests until you get this settled. You see? And so all of this plays in. Right with God, right with others, meaning that we will have uh, prayers that are answered by God. Now, let's get back to this area of priority of prayer. In church, many churches today and in the lives of believers in general, prayer has lost its place of prominence. For example, in churches, it's not uncommon that we spend more time on announcements than we do in prayer. Isn't that a shame? Isn't that a shame? But it's true. It's true. And then we spend more time doing other things than praying. And this makes our... Uh, church, it makes our efforts toward the lost weaker 
not stronger. I would put a plug in here for prayer meeting. I'm not trying to build up the numbers of prayer meetings for numbers sake. But you know, a prayer meeting is sometimes a good measure of the spiritual mindedness of the church. Are people under the burden of prayer? Do they realize the importance of prayer? Do we really understand that God is in this and God is for us? And if so, then we ought to be engaged with him in this area of prayer. Also, I'm so glad to hear about this uh, initiative uh, brought on by uh, Brother Kim Ming and, and others and Pastor Bobby for emphasizing praying for 100 guests for the Christmas Day service. That's great. We're bathing this thing in prayer. We're soaking it in prayer. Why? So that people will come, people will hear the word of God, people will somehow be attracted to God and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And then, uh, as we move on, we find that, in summary, when we live righteously and pray with, uh, without anger and disputing for all and for those in position of influence, our prayers for the lost will be effective and accomplish much more than we could ever imagine or hope for. So, let's make no mistake, to be a credible and to be a faithful witness for the Lord, what does it involve? It means praying for the lost. But Paul doesn't stop with just praying. He says we need to go to the lost. So it involves going. Look at verses 3 to 7. Going specifically with the gospel. When we go to the lost, we might bring a box of candy. We may bring a box of mooncakes. Whatever the case may be, whatever time of year it is. We may go with a gift. We might go with a red envelope filled with all kinds of nice things. Okay? That, but that's not our main purpose. When we go, we're hopeful and prayerful that we can bring, go to them with the gospel. Look at, look at how this is developed in starting with verse 3. In verse 3, 1 uh, Timothy chapter 2. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, it says. What is this? This is praying. That's what he was talking about in verses 1 to 2. He said, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. Praying for the lost is good for us. And then he goes on to say, very quickly, he says, God our Savior, and then uh, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so what do we notice here, in starting with verse 3 onwards, is that, first of all, that the good news of salvation is from God. The good news of salvation originates from God. Salvation starts with God. Okay? Salvation, the offer of salvation, the idea of salvation from the wrath of God for our sins was not something that pastors made up, that authors, theologians made up. It's not something some philosopher made up. It comes from the very heart of God. It starts with Him. Well, how do we know that? Because, first of all, God by His very nature, He says, God our Savior, God by His nature is a saving God. He is the source of our salvation. And He is the source of our salvation who desires all men to be saved, it says in verse 4. It is part of God's heartbeat. It is part of His DNA. It is part, it's the heartbeat of Him that all men would accept this invitation this offer of salvation from sin. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, 
says this, and it says, The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It's part of God. It starts with God. It comes from God. But how is it delivered to us? How is it exercised? It comes out. Salvation comes through Christ. Look at the second half of verse 4. To be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth, it says. What truth is that? Look at verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, it says in verse 5. And so, this is a mini presentation of the gospel. And the gospel says this. There is one God, not many gods. You don't have to walk around out there trying to please many different gods. There's only one that really counts. It's the God of the Bible. The God who is clearly identifies himself and describes himself. This is the one God. And he says there is one mediator between man and God. God and men. Who is that? What is a mediator? <laughs> what is a mediator? A mediator is one who comes between two parties to resolve a conflict. And in this case, it is to restore peace between God and sinners. One, and, and it says that there's only one of those. One God, one mediator. Now, I know there's people out there. I have met them. You have met them. They may be in your family. They may be in your neighborhood. They may be in your school, at your workplace. And they say, I choose to believe that there's many ways to God. But guess what? The gospel says there's only one God and there's one mediator. And who is it? It is Christ Jesus. The, the definite article, the, is not used in there. So it could be better translated. Christ Jesus himself is this mediator. And so he, this is what he has, this is the truth that he is talking about. And he says of this uh, mediator, he goes on further to describe him. In, after verse 5, he goes to verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Two things. Who gave himself as a ransom. The word ransom there is used in a slightly different way than we are familiar with. The ransom means a price paid to free a slave or a prisoner. Jesus Christ himself was the payment to free us from slavery of sin. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, uh, says it this way. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. You see, he paid the price. He was the price. And then it says, the testimony given at the proper time. The testimony of what? The proof that God truly desires all men to be saved. And so if you're looking for some sign that God really is serious about the salvation of mankind, you look at Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And you would say, wow, God is truly serious about saving all mankind. 
And so this is the truths that so far have been unveiled to us. Salvation comes uh, from God. Salvation comes through Christ. But salvation is also to be proclaimed. This truth is to be proclaimed. How does this reveal itself? Look at verse 7. Verse 7. It says, For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. For this, this verse starts out with. For what? What is for this? What is the this? The this is the truth contained in verses 3 to 6. One God, one mediator, Christ Jesus. Okay? He says, for this message, for this truth, I was appointed a preacher. He says, the word preacher there literally means a herald. And a herald is one who takes an important announcement and shares it with the people to take the gospel to the majority of the human race. Now, that's, so why is this so important that he says that a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth? Because at this particular time, there was some false teaching going on that was given by Jewish Christians who said, the gospel is for God's people. The Jewish people. And that's all. And Paul says, uh-uh. He says, I was called to be a preacher, to be a herald to the Gentiles. All the people. He includes all of the people. Not just the Jewish people. And so the gospel is meant for all people. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. What does it say? Make disciples of some of the nations. Select nations. No. It says all the nations, so all the people. And I'm so glad he did that, because that includes me. That includes you. It includes you. It includes, it includes all of us here. You see, the gospel is meant to go out for all of us. So going involves proclaiming the truth that there is one God, one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. I like the way John records this for us in the words of Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, this has all been done by God. You see, God made these arrangements. God made it possible. He made it a reality. And so this is what we need to carry, this message of salvation through Jesus Christ to the world. But there's one more thing that will help us to be a better and more credible and faithful witness of God and the gospel to the world. The last part is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. And that is be living before the laws. We are to pray for the laws. We are to go to the laws. But we're also to live before the lost. And this comes by understanding, first of all, who we are, or who you are. And in verse 14, it says this, you are the light of the world. Now, God doesn't choose these, these, these words lightly. He chooses them very quickly. Why is it that he says, you and I, if we know Christ, are the light of the world? Light has only one purpose, one purpose, and that is to dispel darkness. It is to bring light 
it, light goes and illumines darkness so that we can see life as it really is. We can see truth. We can see things that we haven't seen before, but that we need to see. And so light, you are the light of the world. We are here to dispel the darkness that is in the world, the darkness of sin, the darkness of hatred, the darkness of all these things that keep us away from the truths of God. And so we are to be the light of the world. And what you don't want to do as light of the world is given to us in the second half of verse 14 and on to the first part of verse 15. It says, And a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, Okay, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lamp stand, it says, so that it may give light to all who are in the house. All right? And so, he says, what you don't want to do is hide this light, okay? Put it in a prominent place, okay? This kind of thing. God didn't give us this light. He didn't make us be light so that we hide away in a closet somewhere or in a corner somewhere, but that we be visible, all right? So you are the light of the world, not to be hidden, but out in the open. And says also in the... Third, the third thing that we do is he reveals to us is what you do want to do. Look at verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Don't do this, but do this. Don't hide yourself, but let your light shine. Get it out there, he says. Let the, don't cover it up. Don't put the close the curtains, but get out there, he says. Why? He said, how can you, let your light so shine. How? In such a way that they see your good works. Good works is an integral part of this. So when we go out there into the world, we start showing our light. How? By our good works. It's interesting that the scripture tells us that we are created for good works. Ephesians chapter 2. And then in uh, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're told that we are equipped for good works. So, we've been created for this purpose. We have been equipped for this purpose. We have all of the tools that we need to do this to do good works. Why? Is it so that people will come to us, oh, you're such a good person, oh, you're such a good, oh, I love you, you're just a good person. You know? No. It's so that we may glorify our Father who is in heaven. Good works glorify God. Our good works bring glory and attention to God, our Father. Not to us, but to God. Now, that's an amazing thought, isn't it? But this is nevertheless what he, the point he's trying to drive across. Pastor Tony Evans, in his book on this verse, said this, Good works are the deeds of kindness and blessing that we do to the benefit of others in the name of God, and for His glory. So what is it that's going on in your life that is bringing glory to God? It's sad to say, but in some churches, instead of getting our light out there, we keep the light on inside. <laughs> that's where we keep it. So inside there's all of this light shining, all of this blessing going on. But in the meantime, the world is soaked in darkness, and we're not out there dispelling the darkness. But that's what we need to do, okay? That's what God wants us to do. I praise God for angel tree. I know some of you would say, that's only 800 people. 
800 people is a lot of people. One person is a lot of persons, okay? If I can put it that way. And so we want to get out there. We want to shine the light on this, on God for these people so that they will see Him and accept Him. And so such things as angel tree is great. It leads us to believe then that if we hear, if we hear this right, is that what goes on inside the church for the Lord is, is, is as important or maybe less important than what happens outside the church for God. You see? And so carry the light. Let it shine. Get it out of here and into the darkness, into the world. So being a strong testimony for God doesn't only include talking about God. It also involves living for God before people. And I think all of us, while we may have reservations about the talking about God, you know, I might say the wrong thing kind of thing. I can't talk like you. I can't talk like him. I can't talk like her. You know, this kind of thing. We can all live before the lost and be an effective witness. And so this becomes uh, all part and parcel. So we pray for the lost. We go to the lost. With what? With the gospel. And then we live before the lost. And this makes us an incredible, not just a credible, but an incredible, powerful witness for the Lord. Well, how can we make this a reality in our lives then? How can we do this? We can do this, and I'll give you three things. First of all, for some of you, it will mean getting more serious about praying for the lost. You know, if I asked you, what did you pray for this week or today? Oh, well, yeah. I thank God for the food. Uh, what else? Oh, I prayed that I would have a good day at school, or I pray I have a good day at work, and all this. Oh, good, good, good. And all of these things. But after hearing this, would it not be proper? Would it not be good for us to be praying, perhaps for our parents, for our aunts and uncles, for our family members, for our neighbors that don't know the Lord? Praise that their heart will be open and pray that there would be an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Wouldn't that be proper? The Bible says it is good and acceptable to God. All right? And so we ought to include that. So for some of us, making this a reality in our life is getting more serious about praying for the lost. Another thing, it may mean seeing yourselves as rescuers and not just one as of the rescued. What? What are you talking about here? All around us, people are drowning and dying because of their sins. And we have the opportunity to rescue them. But what do we do? Instead of rescuing them, we ignore them. <laughs> Why? Because we're one of the rescued. I've been saved. Let them find their way. You see? And it's going to, take, it's going to have to take a whole change in our mindset to say, I am a rescuer and not just one who has been rescued. I remember this example. It was given by one of my classmates in, in his sermon. And he was talking about this in England. You know, England has a long coastline. And so what happens is that the seas that, that uh, smash against the shores of England are very treacherous. And so there were many boating accidents. There were many ships that were in distress and people were dying and, and people were drowning and things like that. And so what they did was that the people who lived on the coast decided to set up what they call rescue units. 
And so they would be people who would be on call with their boats. When they saw a ship crash and they saw people in the water, they would immediately set out in their ships and go out and pull these people out of the water so they wouldn't die. Well, over time, these rescue units actually became what we call today yacht clubs. And what happens is that instead of rescuing people, they became content with just pleasing themselves. And so the whole mission of rescuing people just sort of faded into the background. And that can happen to a church because we become so comfortable. We become so much at ease. And we're so busy trying to make ourselves feel good that we forget there are people that are dying out there. We have forgotten the fact that we are rescuers and not just one of those who's been rescued, you see. Thirdly, it might also mean that there has to be ch uh, changing our, uh, your lifestyle, changing your lifestyle. I'm convinced that many of us are hesitant or even resistant to go out there and share the gospel, to go to the lost. Why? Because there is some kind of sin or life, sinful lifestyle that we want to hold on to. We don't want to give it up. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but how many of us in this room would say, yeah, I'm willing to go out there and let someone call me a hypocrite? No way. No way. So it's rather better I stay quiet, zip my lip, and not say anything for God. So nobody's pointing a finger back at me and saying, you hypocrite. You say one thing and you do another. You see? And so what it would involve is for us to actually have a change in our lifestyle, forsaking the sin that that may be in our life. Romans chapter 6 verse 12. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You see? So for some of us. Living before the lost is going to mean a change in our lifestyle so that it, is, it will make us a better witness for the Lord. The key ministry of the church is to be a credible witness of the gospel. And this happens by praying for the lost, going to the lost, and living before the lost. And I hope with all my heart that we would be committed to testifying, saving the lost. Why? Because the impact will be great, not just for today, but for all eternity. And that's what we're talking about, folks. We're not talking about temporal change. We're not talking about simple gloss over. We are talking about changes that will affect us for all eternity. And I pray with all our heart that GBC and the people of GBC will be effective wit and faithful witnesses for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you have been so good to us. Your graces and mercies have just been so abundant supply. And yet, Father, perhaps the area that we need to be concerned about is how can we be effective, credible, faithful witnesses of the gospel and of you to others. Help us, dear Lord. Help us. Help us to make the changes in our lives Help us to make the adjustments we need to make in rearranging our priorities so that we pray, go, and live. In Jesus' name, amen.